If you've got a Bible, open it up to the book of Philippians. We're going to be going through just a review and summary of Philippians this morning, uh, and then we're done with Philippians. Next week, we will still have college class. Like Waldo mentioned, it'll be our last one of the semester. Uh, I know. I'm sad about it, too, but uh, we're going to do something a little bit different next week. So I encourage you guys to come on out, and then uh, after that, we will say adieu to you for the summer. If you are here for the summer, I will say this, if you are in town, we do have our college service during the summer at 11 o'clock only, no 6 o'clock, and there are also small groups throughout the week. So we'd love to have you around this summer if you're here, but if not, we will catch you in the fall. All right, Uh, I'm just going to read the very end of the book of Philippians before we pray. Philippians chapter 4, verses 20 to 23, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, amen. Greet every saint in Jesus Christ. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the word of God and what it has to say to us. We praise you that through your word, we have come to the knowledge of the truth that Jesus Christ, your son, died on a cross for us and rose again. Father, we thank you for our time this semester in the book of Philippians. Uh, We thank you for what it tells us about the power of the gospel. Father, we pray now that you would transform our lives, transform our hearts, our minds, our attitudes, and the ways we use our bodies. Transform them so that we can reflect and represent Jesus. As we study your word this morning, give us wisdom and understanding Pray, move in our hearts that we would believe you and move in our hands and feet to obey. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Over the past year for me has been a time of transformation. Some people uh, who have known me for a long time have said uh, that I seem to be a totally different person uh, in a couple of different respects. One, first of all, uh, just last fall, uh, I became a coffee drinker for the very first time in my life. I resisted, I'm 35 years old, I resisted drinking coffee all the way, when I went to college, people said, uh, you'll really get into coffee when you're in college, never did, never drank it. We didn't have coffee shops every couple of feet either when I was in college, so it was a little bit different, never drank coffee as much. People said, well, when you go to grad school, you'll drink coffee, never got into it. When you have babies and kids, you'll drink coffee to stay up, never did. Uh, But last summer, here's what happened, I went to speak at a camp, and uh, I would stay up late because the band that was leading worship was playing this game late into the night where you would try to throw a ping pong ball into a box. And I got really competitive about this game. And so I would be playing this game and it'd be like two, three in the morning. And I'd look up and go, what have I done? You know, and because I would have to speak at like eight in the morning. So I'd get up, I'd get ready to speak. And the only thing that was going to keep me awake was the coffee that they had sitting up there. And so the band and I are all up there going, okay, we got it, you know, and I would drink this coffee. By the time I finished with this thing, I got home and I said to my wife, we, we have to buy this stuff, right? And so uh, we went and we got a coffee pot and we got all this coffee and I'm drinking it. And literally the first couple of days, because uh, my wife is not a coffee drinker either. She's sitting at the table and she's just looking at me, like waiting for me to take a sip, like what's gonna happen to you, you know, when she started doing this. So I had that transformation. And then the second one I shared with you guys earlier was around Christmas time, we got a dog. 
Now, uh, for this was a first for me as well, other than I had a dog when I was a kid. But in my adult life, I've never had a dog. I've always resisted it, partly because my wife is a big fan of inside dogs. I believe that dogs are animals, and so they belong in the out of doors. And so uh, we had had this discussion, and, and finally, I'll be honest, I caved. And, and we got a dog around Christmas. And so all of a sudden, over the course of a few months, I went from being a non-coffee-drinking dog resistor to a coffee-drinking dog person, right? And so people who know me are like, what has happened to you? All right, maybe you have had events or years like that in your life where you go, man, things have changed for me. Uh, maybe it was this year. Maybe you are a freshman this year or a sophomore and you just came here. You moved out of your parents' house for the first time in your life. You came to Texas A&M or Blinn and you went from being dependent upon them, subject to their rules to all of a sudden being an adult, right? Living, amen. Someone says amen. All right. Living in a new place making new friends, and it's a big transformation. Many of you are about to go through another transformation in your life. You're going to graduate college and hopefully find a job, and you will begin the process not of taking classes anymore or of uh, having time to be involved in organizations and things like that. Instead, you'll go to work, 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, and then you'll go to bed, you'll get up, and you'll do it all again each day. Some of you will get married, eventually have kids, and these are big changes in your life. I've been through all of those different transitions in life, and the reason I'm sharing this is because of all those transitions, I have to say that the biggest transformation in my life personally didn't involve having kids, didn't involve getting married, although those were were massive transformations in my life. The biggest transformation in my life really happened my freshman year in college, when I decided that I was going to orient my life and my decisions and my attitudes around the values of Jesus Christ. I became a Christian when I was very young. My parents are Christians. I trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life when I was about five, but it wasn't until I came to college that the Lord really got a hold of all of the areas of my life. I mean, compared to that, drinking coffee is nothing. Getting a dog is nothing. And it's not that uh, I look at my life and I go, man, all of my decisions are always right. Uh, there are times that I'm lazy and whiny and cynical and prideful and all of those things. But, but it has transformed my life from that point to where I, I generally want to say my decisions and my attitudes and my actions, I want them to be pleasing to God. And I want my life to be transformed by the fact that Jesus Christ died for me and rose again to give me eternal life. And so I want my life to reflect who Jesus is, and what he's done. And my prayer for you guys, whether you're about to graduate, whether you're just getting here, my prayer for you is that as you move forward into adulthood, you will make your life about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that he will revolutionize the way that you think about everything. About the jobs you get, about the way you spend your money, about the things you watch and listen to, about the friends you make, the things you say and do. So we've looked at the book of Philippians this past semester. What we've seen is Paul urging a group of people, a church, to orient their lives around the truth of Jesus Christ. And just like us, these were people who lived in a culture and in a day and age where the word of God was not valued. They lived in a time where uh, being a bold Christian could bring you persecution to an even greater extent than you and I face. 
And so as you walk through the book, you've seen that people, they're struggling with a number of things. There's conflict in the church. Every person wants their own rights to be valued. Sound familiar? There's conflict without the church. There's false teaching coming in from outside. People saying that Jesus isn't enough. You need to add your own righteousness or your own works. There's persecution. People coming in and taking things away from them, their property, threatening them with jail, threatening them with imprisonment and all kinds of things. And in the midst of all that, Paul says, you stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow it to transform you. Whoever you are this morning, that's my prayer for you, that you will stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it will transform you. And what I want to do is briefly walk through some of the key lessons we've taken from the book of Philippians about how the gospel will revolutionize your life. And one of the things that I've said over and over as we've walked through this series is this, to recognize that if you have believed in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again to make payment for your sins, you can be secure in the fact that you have eternal life, right? But that's not the end of your Christian life. Throughout the rest of your life, then you are now called to make disciples. That is to teach the words that Jesus said, to help others know him. You are called to reflect him with your life because of what he's done. And through the power of the Spirit, my prayer is that you'll be transformed. How does the gospel do that in your life? Let me give you just a few ways. All right, first of all, it redeems our suffering. Gospel redeems our suffering. Look at a couple of passages again from the book of Philippians. First, chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now down to verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now remember, as Paul is writing, he's in jail. And all the way through this book, he tells them, rejoice in the Lord, stand firm in the gospel. But right here at the beginning, Paul says, it may seem like my circumstances are bad from your point of view because I'm in jail. But he says, God has used my circumstances to further the progress of the gospel. And this is what I now pray for you, that you will stand firm in the Lord with one mind, united, recognizing that if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but it's been granted to you as a gift to suffer for his sake. Now that sounds really odd to our Western 21st century ears, right? Here's a funny gift. You get to suffer. The world is full of all kinds of suffering. And I really have become convinced if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then all of that suffering is meaningless. Small suffering from the grade you didn't want to get on a test up to the person who broke up with you, up to persecution for the gospel. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, it's all wasted. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, says this, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. 
During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Have a nice day, right? The truth is, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's absolutely right. If God didn't create the world for a purpose and a meaning to display his glory, then he's absolutely right. But what we see in the writings of Paul is this, that in Jesus Christ, because Jesus has defeated death, he has defeated sin, and he has defeated suffering by his resurrection, because of that, we have a hope that goes beyond any suffering in this life. And so what Paul says is this, that even in the midst of all of our pain and suffering, we look forward to the day when Jesus will finally put an end to it all. And we know that that day is coming. And so in the midst of that, the suffering that we experience transforms us into men and women of faith in God. Who can walk faithfully with God, even in suffering. Knowing that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, these light and momentary afflictions aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits And so we can suffer well because we know it's temporary. We can suffer well because we know it's transformative. Because we know it will change us into the image of Jesus Christ. And suffering takes on a whole new meaning. This past week, I had to go have my blood drawn. Years ago, let me explain why, I signed up for the Bone Marrow Donor Registry. And the reason I did was because we had a, a kid at our church back home who had leukemia, and so everybody at the church volunteered to sign up for this deal so that in case there was a match in the church, this kid would have bone marrow or stem cell transplant in order to save his life. So my wife and I signed up. Uh, We weren't a match for him, moved on. Uh, Well, you stay on that registry, I think, forever, unless you ask to get off of it. And so about two or three weeks ago, I got a call. uh, Ten years later, got a call. They said, it looks like you're a match for a 33-year-old man who has leukemia. Would you be interested in helping us out? And so, you know, I said, what's involved? Talk to him and said, sure, if I'm a match, great, I'll help out. So uh, this week I had to go for the final testing stage. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because I went over to Scott and White. I sat down in that little chair and uh, it was right when I sat down that I remembered I hate needles. Uh, I just, I hate getting stuck with a needle. And so I sat down and uh, the lady takes that needle and she puts it in there and I took a breath and I kind of turned my head and she's like, wow, you're pretty brave. I'll bet you're like the hero at the blood donor centers. I'm like, don't, just don't talk to me right now. Can't look. And, and I look over right before she sticks me with the needle and she had seven tubes that she was going to fill up with my blood. And, uh, I was expecting like, you know, prick my finger and just go like that. You know, she's like, we're going to draw all of this blood. And so I'm feeling woozy. I'm feeling sick. And I'm just like, I can't look, you know, and she did that. And I got up and I walked out and I thought, uh, I didn't like that. Right. I didn't care for it. And, uh, and yet there was something about it that as I walked away, I thought, you know, there is a meaning behind this. And that's what I had to remind myself of because I could have the privilege down the line 
of helping save someone's life. And so that discomfort and that pain and that feeling of wooziness has a greater purpose. That is what Paul talks about all the way through Philippians. As you go throughout your life, and the longer you live, the more suffering you're going to see and experience. That's just the reality of life. Some of you already have experienced a lifetime of pain and suffering. Others of you, your life has been pretty okay. Whoever you are, the longer you live, you're going to see more death, more sickness, more interpersonal turmoil, more conflict, more pain and suffering. The only thing that transforms it is the reminder of the gospel. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and so I can suffer with endurance and allow the world to see Jesus in me and know that I bear the Spirit of God within me, the God who raised Jesus from the dead and defeated suffering and death. So the gospel transforms our suffering. It redeems it. Secondly, it transforms our relationships. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, Paul says this, that if you know Jesus and if you look at what Jesus has done, that ought to transform the way you think about yourself and the way you think about other people because no longer is your mindset that I'm going to live for me. But your mindset is, I'm gonna live in such a way that reflects what Jesus has done. That when I was a sinner, When I was rebellious, when I needed forgiveness but was not worthy of it, Jesus died for me. And he stood between me and the wrath of God. And then he rose again so I can have life. That changes the way I think about other people. Because now my desire is to extend that grace through God's spirit to those who don't know it or those who are in need of it, which is everybody I know. Uh, about a week ago, Chuck Colson passed away. Some of you know the name Chuck Colson. Some of you don't. Uh, in the last 30 years, he's mostly been known for his prison fellowship ministry, uh, which is a great worldwide ministry to prisoners, bringing them the gospel, taking care of their families. He's also known for his books and his teaching from the Bible. What some of you know and some of you don't is that prior to being a well-known Christian leader, Chuck Colson was one of the leading figures in the Watergate scandal of the Nixon administration, one of the greatest political scandals of the 20th century. He was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. If you got on the wrong side of the president, 
uh, Chuck Colson was the one who wrote your name down on President Nixon's enemies list. And the goal was, we're going to destroy you. But when he went to prison for his role in Watergate, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. People were skeptical, in fact, because here's this guy that was vicious and ruthless and unkind, and he became a Christian. And even at the time, he said, you know, don't judge me by my words now. Judge me by the ministry I have 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and over the next 30 years, 35 years. He lived out the grace of God. He even went to some people who were on that enemies list, and he asked their forgiveness. And he sought to bring the grace of God to others around him. Those who know him, I never met him, never knew him, but those who know him say he was a man, not only of faith, but of joy and encouragement. And it revolutionized his relationships with other people. See, he no longer was determined to be a person who hurt other people, but he was determined to be a person who reflected the grace of God. That's a lot like what we see in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. Prior to knowing Jesus, who was he? He's a guy who persecuted the church. He put Christians to death because he was bitter and angry that the gospel of Jesus Christ threatened his authority as a Pharisee and as a leader of the Jewish people. And yet when Jesus Christ got a hold of his life, he turned into a man of love, a man who was willing to endure persecution and hardship and pain for the sake of God's people. Knowing Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ will transform your relationships. One of the biggest changes where you will go from being an immature follower of Christ to a mature follower of Christ is when you begin to get into your mind that, the, that life is not primarily about me. That I don't primarily come to church just to get my own needs met. Although hopefully on some level you do. But I come to church instead and I engage in a church and I involve in a church so that I can serve others, so that I can reflect the grace of God, so that I can share the gospel and be a part of what God is doing around the world. It's that transformation of saying, you know, my life is not primarily about what house I'm going to live in, what career I'm going to have, how much money I'm going to have, how happy I'm going to be, but my life instead is about pouring out my energy, my time, my resources to serve God's people, to share the gospel with those who don't know him, and to follow him. It's a huge transformation. That's why Paul says here in Philippians 2, the key is this, consider the example of Jesus Christ. If anybody had a right to be appreciated, to be worshipped, to be treated well, it was him. And yet he sacrificed his rights, humbled himself to the point of death on our behalf. So that ought to transform the way we think about our relationships. Even the way you think about your annoying roommate or your over-involved mom. And certainly the way you think about that professor who's giving you a final that doesn't resemble anything he's taught. And the way you think about the people sitting in this room and the way you think about the world, right? Because life is no longer about what you can squeeze out of it. But it's about reflecting your Savior. And transforms your relationships. Thirdly, the gospel destroys our self-righteousness. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision 
For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things... I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so Paul was a guy prior to knowing Jesus who he was one of the Jewish leaders. He followed the law perfectly. He was a Pharisee. He did everything right. And he took pride in that. And he said, because of that, God approves of me. Well, when Jesus got a hold of his life, it turned him around. He says, now my passion is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, not any longer trusting in my own righteousness, but the righteousness that God has given to me in Jesus Christ. In other words, my standing now before God isn't based upon how many people I help. It's not based upon how often I read my Bible. It's not based upon how hard I pray. It's not based upon being an officer in the coolest Christian organization on campus or a leader at my church. My standing before God is only based on the fact that Jesus Christ died for me and rose again. And so now when I serve and when I lead and when I pray and when I read the scripture, I don't do those things to earn God's favor. Because I can't. I do those things because I have God's favor. And because he's empowered me for his service. And now I'm able to represent and reflect him. Because the love of Christ has filled me up and controls me. And so the gospel destroys our self-righteousness. Some of you have read, some of you have not read the story of Martin Luther, one of the great reformers in the history of the church. And most of you probably know that it was Martin Luther who posted the 95 theses on the wall of the church or the door of the church at Wittenberg uh, to revolutionize and reform the medieval church that was steeped in self-righteousness. What a lot of people don't know about Luther is prior to that moment, he had a career as a monk in the Catholic Church. And in fact, uh, some people don't know, how did he get there? How did he decide to be a monk? Well, here's what happened with Martin Luther. One day, Luther is walking down the road and he gets caught in a terrible thunderstorm. Now, you got to remember, this is before the days of weathermen, before the days of weather bug on your phone, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Luther is scared to death. All right, a big thunderstorm could kill you. And he's walking down the road and there's this huge thunderstorm. There's lightning all around and uh, lightning strikes a tree nearby. Luther, uh, who was also a particularly fearful person, he leaps into a ditch on the side of the road and he huddles up in the fetal position and he says, God, if you'll let me survive this storm, I'll be a monk, right? Maybe you've had those moments, right? If you'll let me get an A on this test, I will give money to my church. I will go to seminary. That's Luther. He says, if you'll let me survive this, I'll be a monk. So he does. Storm ends. He gets up. He's okay. He goes, 
all right, I'm a monk, right? So he goes and he signs up and he becomes a monk. And here's what he said about his time as a monk. He says, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. In fact, even the other monks were like, hey, Martin, chill, right? It's okay, right? When other monks are telling you that, you've taken it over the top, all right? Here's a guy that if he could have gotten to heaven by all the monk stuff, he would have gotten there, and yet he never felt at peace with God. In fact, he says, I felt angry with God. I resented the justice of God because the justice of God felt to me like a burden. It felt to me like God was unfair, and I was running on this treadmill, and I could never earn his favor. And so he begins to read the book of Romans, and he says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, because I took it to mean that that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This, is, this it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. What revolutionized his life is seeing this, that the justice of God is satisfied in Jesus Christ. And all of that running on the treadmill of a monk could never satisfy that. So my prayer for you is this, that you won't spend your life playing the religious game, thinking that it will earn God's favor. But that you will spend your life knowing that you're accepted by God because Jesus died for you and rose again. And if you've not believed that this morning, I pray that this morning you'll accept the free gift of eternal life that God extends through Jesus Christ, that you can know you're accepted by him, you can know you'll spend eternity with him if you believe in what he's done that he died and rose for you, for those who have accepted him. The challenge then is this, that our service is not to be motivated by some sort of desire to climb to the top of the religion heap or some sort of desire to impress others or think that God's going to tally up my good stuff and let me into heaven on the basis of that or like me more. But instead, it's to recognize that I've been called by God through Jesus Christ, to serve him because I've been given the grace of God. And now I can reflect him. Now I can live out the purpose and meaning of my life 
which is to reflect the image of God. It's what he created us for. And so I can do that in joy and freedom. That's how the gospel transforms you. Removes and destroys your self-righteousness. And that leads, I think, to what Paul talks about over and over again in this book. It fills us with joy. Fills us with joy. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. All right, if Paul has a message as he closes out this book, it is rejoice in the Lord because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Rejoice in the Lord. The Christian life ought to be a joyful endeavor. And that doesn't mean that all your circumstances will be perfect. In fact, it might be quite the opposite. You may, as we said, endure suffering and you may even experience extra suffering because of your stand for Jesus Christ. But you have a joy that goes beyond those circumstances because you know that Jesus has defeated your sin. You know that Jesus has overcome death and you know that he's coming back. And so you can live in joy. There are all kinds of things in the world that will promise you joy. All right, when I graduated high school, I talked about this transition a little bit earlier. When I graduated high school, I was so excited to go to college, and maybe you were too, because you thought college is going to be awesome. I'm going to have all this freedom. I don't have to ever clean my room. I don't have to ever do what my parents say anymore. I can stay up until three or four in the morning if I want without telling anybody. And so I came here, And I loved college, but there was a problem, and that is people kept making me do work, right? People kept making me take tests and read books and all of this kind of stuff. And so the first semester or so, you know, I did all those things. I stayed up incredibly late. I ate terrible food. I never cleaned my room and got to the end of the first semester and thought my grades aren't quite what I would like because of that. And I'm living in filth, right? And all of a sudden, what I thought would bring me joy didn't really bring me the joy that I hoped because my joy was really based upon circumstance. Some of you, you had that experience, but then you're like, well, I'm going to look to the next thing. Man, when I get married, that'll be it. Uh, When I have kids, that'll be it. When I get a job that pays me like tens of thousands of dollars, that'll be it. And what you find is that the next stage, there's happiness mixed with disappointment. That's life. And so what Paul says is the joy we have in Jesus Christ transcends all of that. Because it's eternal and it's lasting and it can't be taken away. And that's, in a nutshell, the message of the book of Philippians. If you want a life of significance and meaning and purpose, if you want a life of joy, invested in knowing Jesus Christ, invested in making disciples, invested in a kingdom that'll last forever. That's where joy comes from. 
So as we wrap up the book, that's my prayer for you this summer, that you will continue to walk with the Lord because of what he's done for you. You will continue to walk with him as you graduate, as you move out. For those of you that will be here for another year or five or seven or however many, that you will continue to walk with the Lord. So that one day when we meet him, we'll rejoice as he says, well done, enter into the joy of your rest. You've invested your life in those things that matter. And we'll have the privilege of fulfilling our purpose for which he made us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for for this time. Thank you that you've not left us alone in our sin, but you gave your own son who died and rose again for us. And we thank you for how the book of Philippians illuminates that the message of Jesus Christ not only provides us with eternal life, but also has the potential to revolutionize our lives. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times we have lived for our own agendas and instead allow us to live for yours. We love you, God. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week.